0: But for the first two quarters of our Answers Bible Curriculum Sunday School, the church has ordered and distributed student workbooks, student guidebooks, for free to anyone who comes to Sunday School regularly. Going forward, however, we're only going to order and distribute those books to people who sign up for them. This way, the people who use and enjoy the guidebooks are getting a lot out of them. They can continue to use them, while those who don't really use them won't get something that they're not going to use. So I have given a sign-up sheet to Eric, I think. He has that in the back. So if he hasn't come and seen you or, or, yeah, if he hasn't come and seen you yet, you can make sure to see him or maybe he can come up and and get you so that you can get your name on the sign-up sheet in case you have it yet and you want the book for next quarter. You want the free student guidebook, it doesn't cost you anything, just have to sign up for it for next quarter. Okay, now to today's lesson. it looks like the projector's good to go. Thank you, Khalif and Steve. We've been studying the biblical account of the universe's creation for the last few weeks now. And we've taken a big overview of the first chapter. And we've also zoomed in on a few aspects, uh, zoomed in on a few aspects of the creation narrative. We mentioned the creation of plants and animals, dinosaurs included, according to kinds. We also briefly looked at the distinct the special creation of man. Out of all of God's creation, man is special because God has chosen to communicate with man and to have a relationship with man. God created man in God's image. God has given man dominion over all the earthly creation, and God has called man to be a steward of the earth's resources. So man is a unique creation. That's not all we need to know about the beginning of man today we're going to continue talking about man's creation because that's exactly what Genesis does. Right after Genesis chapter 1, we go to Genesis chapter 2 and an account, a more specific account of what happened when the first man and woman was created. Moses and the Holy Spirit decided that the people of Israel needed to know more in Genesis chapter 2 and so do we. So that's the subject of today's lesson, God creates man and woman, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking closely at the specific details of that chapter and consider their implications for uh, men, for women, and also for marriage. Additionally, we'll compare the biblical view of man and woman's creation to the evolutionary view, and also respond to some objections about the biblical view, including the idea that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other. Well, let's begin by praying to our Creator. Oh, holy God, you are so powerful and yet so tender and kind. Lord, And we're going to see your beauty unveiled in this second chapter of Genesis. Help me to be able to explain clearly. Help those who are listening to be able to understand. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 25. Let's see what further details God wanted us to know about the creation of man and women. This is a little bit of a bigger passage than we sometimes read. So follow along with me as I start in verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. And no plants of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided it and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bedelia and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so that's most of chapter two. That's the whole uh, section that we're going to be looking at today. A lot of information to say regarding this chapter, so probably will not have time for additional questions and comments like I usually do. If we have time at the end, uh, I'll open that back up. But let's, now that we've read the passage, let's start with some observational questions about the passage. We always start with observation, then move to interpretation, and then application. Notice verse 4. What kind of literature does the passage itself identify itself as? It calls itself a what? An account, at least that's what it is in the New American Standard, meaning what genre? It's a narrative. An account is a narrative. And this is, an, this is an account of something that happened in history. So we're talking historical narrative. And the word for account here is actually literally descent, family, or generations. So these are the generations of the creation of, the, of earth and heaven. We're actually going to see this same word begin many sections in Genesis. For instance, Genesis 5.1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. Or in the NASB, it says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Gen- Genesis 10-1, now these are the records of the generation of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Genesis eleven twenty seven. 27 now these are the records of the generations of Terah. So these are a, this is a, a literary device that in Genesis opens up many different narrative sections. All these other sections are narrative. Genesis 2 also identifies itself as narrative, historical narrative, which means we should expect it to give us a straightforward understanding of sequential events. That's what narratives do. We see other clues, about, or clues regarding its narrative nature also in the passage. But when does the sequence of events in chapter 2 actually begin? Scan the first couple of verses, starting after verse 4. Was the first event that actually takes takes place in the narrative? What's the first thing that actually happens? That's right. What happens in verse 7, Craig? Very good. The first event is God forming man, God creating man. And the rest of the narrative events, the rest of the sequence unfolds from there. Now, according to chapter 1, on which day was man created? Day 6. I heard a number of you saying it. He's the last creation of God, the final creation of God. But look back to verses 5 and 6. These verses don't describe anything happening, but they do give us some information that's going to relate to the narrative. Looking at those two verses, what is missing from the earth, according to verse 5? Before... Shrubs of the field, or plants of the field, have appeared. So this could be talking about plants, or could be talking about two types of plants. Now, according to Genesis 1, on which day were plants created? Day 3. Now, right after we're told that plants, or certain plants, are missing, verse 4 uses the word, for. We talk about this a lot, but for indicates... Cause. He's about to give a cause for what he just said. So he says, these things are missing... For, and what are the two reasons, according to to the end of verse 5? There's no rain, and there's no man to cultivate the ground. Okay, good observations. Verse 6 starts with the word, but, indicating. See the word, but? What does it tell you about what's coming next? Contrast, that's right. Something is about to come that's going to contrast what I just said. There's no rain, and there's no man, according to verse 5, but the beginning of verse 6, in contrast to that, there is this. What is the this? A mist, that's right. A mist rising up from the ground. The mist is said to water the whole face of the ground. So even though there's no rain, the plants of the earth certainly have a mechanism for gaining their necessary water. Right after that, verse 7 says, God created man. Okay. Now, verse 5 sounds like we're starting on day 3. Verse 7 sounds like we're starting on day 6. How should we reconcile these two? Well, for now, we're just observing. We'll come back to that question in the, in the interpretation step. But do note, the narrative actually starts in verse 7 with man's creation. That's when the sequence of events, the chronology, actually begins in the passage. Now, some more observations. How was the first man created? Two steps. He was formed from the dust, and God breathed the spirit of life, the breath of life into his nostrils. That's right. So verse 7, in detail, but also briefly describing, man is formed out of the dust of the ground, out of dirt, and God breathed life into his nostrils about the Garden of Eden. How did it come to be and what was in it? How did the garden come to be? God planted it. God created it specially. And then what was in it? What did God put in it? He put man in it. What else? He put certain trees. A whole bunch of trees, but two special trees also. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What was man's role in the garden? Cultivate and keep it, tend it. He's going to take care of it. He's going to cultivate it. What specific command, however, does God also give to Adam? As soon as he puts him in the garden? except. Right, He says, you can eat from any of the trees of this garden, but do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. When you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what does God identify for the first time, towards the end of this narrative, as something being not good in his creation? That the man is alone. Now, God brings some animals to Adam to deal with his aloneness. And Adam names the animals, but note, not all of the animals are brought to Adam. The text specifically identifies a few kinds. Which kinds are brought to Adam? And the the first description is that it's the beasts of the field and also the birds of the air, or flying creatures, but the verse right after that also says uh, we can identify another kind of animal. Cattle, or livestock. That's right. So those are the only animal types identified as being brought to Adam. But among these animals, Adam did not find a helper comparable to him. So then, God created the first woman. Now, we talked about how the first man was created. How was the first woman created? God takes a rib from Adam. That's the first step. And then? That's right. God uses that rib and forms a woman out of it. It has to be supernatural because you, you obviously couldn't just get a whole person from a rib. But God fashions that rib into an entire woman. And once God has finished creating her, what does he do with her? That's right. He brings her... To Adam. He brings her to Adam. And when God presents the woman to Adam, and I think this is really fascinating, how does Adam respond? What? That's right. He responds by instantly saying, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Now, I imagine our responses might be like, whoa, who are you? Or something like that. But no, that's not Adam's response. He says, I know you, or in a sense, I I recognize something about you. Adam recognizes that this woman came from him. This is my flesh. This is my bone. You probably noticed that his rib was missing. You notice that she looks a lot like he does. And so he notices that she's of his flesh, and he also names her. He says, she shall be called woman. Now, for what reason does he call her that? It's told us directly in the text. That's right. Because she was taken out of man. Because she came out of man. Now, this works well in English because the words for man and woman are very similar. You can see in the word woman, the name or the word man is in it. So that makes sense. But it wasn't written in English. The Bible wasn't written in English. So what about the Hebrew? Well, even though most of the passage uses the word adam to refer to the first man, to Adam, here in verse 23, I think it's 23, when he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, it's a different word for man. It's the word ish, which can be translated man or husband. And the word for woman is Isha." So you can also see that even in the Hebrew, there's a connection between those two words. Isha has the word ish in it. So Adam's explanation for why he calls the woman Isha makes sense. He says, even her name is going to remind us where she came from. She came from man. She was taken out of man. One last observational question. How does, verses, how does verse 25's mention of nakedness compare with the understanding of, of nakedness in the rest of the Bible? Yeah, Rob. That's exactly right. Thanks, Rob. Here, in verse 25, though, we have no shame with this nakedness. It says, they were naked and unashamed. But in the rest of the Bible, and certainly in the minds of the Hebrew, they would have associated nakedness with the shame of sin. All right. Let's ask some more interpretive questions now. We're going to first start with some apologetic-type questions. Many people, including some professing Christians, believe that man is the product of evolutionary processes that took place over billions of years. Either evolution took place totally free of God's influence and intervention, or God was guiding the evolutionary processes until it resulted in the first two humans. They might even say, Adam and Eve were not created all of a sudden, but they were ape men that finally reached a level of evolution so that God breathed his spirit into them and they became humans. They wiped their memories of their former lives and they became humans. Or, well, what are some problems, however, with trying to unite such evolutionary views of men and women's origins with the details of the Genesis 2 narrative? What are some problems? Yeah, Rob. That's a good question. Uh, not, I'm sure there are different... Hmm? I'm not exactly sure about the answer to that. According to evolution, did they think it was all one gender until a certain time? I think I may have heard that before, but um, I think what probably evolutionists would say is that there was male and female, but they weren't humans. Well what are some problems with that idea, according to this text? Um, I think I'll think I follow what you're saying. The beasts were definitely created by God. And there would certainly, we would look for some sort of indication in the text, if evolution was indeed the process that God used, that that's what, uh, that's what God had done. And certainly, we've already looked at Genesis 1, and we've, uh, I've asserted to you, and I think it's provable from the text, that evolution is, is not the process that God used. It doesn't fit with the details of Genesis 1, but specifically at Genesis 2. What's something in the text that just doesn't line up with an evolutionary idea of man and woman's origins? Consider how we're told in the text how we're told man is created. He was not created from a creature, but from what? Dirt. Something non-living. Out of the dust, the ground he's formed. That's a pretty explicit detail. Moreover, how is a woman created, according to the text? from a rib. Now that is from something that's living, but that's not a living creature. That's part of a creature. And it certainly wouldn't result in an entire woman. Furthermore, Eve is said to be created while Adam was sleeping. So that couldn't have been a very long time, or else Adam would have been sleeping for millennia. So we have a number of details in this text that directly contradict the assertions of evolutionary theory. But someone will say, well, those details are there. But this passage is just figurative. It's just a big analogy. The original audience would have understood that these these details are not to be taken literally. Well, there's a big problem with that statement, too. Because of what the New Testament says regarding the creation of man and women. And we're going to look at a few of those passages together. These passages take Genesis 2 as straightforward fact. You don't have to turn to these passages, but they're there on the slide if you would like to. I'll read each passage to you. These passages are, don't have man and woman's creation as the main subject, but they mention it. And So I want you to pick up and tell me what is it that they say about man and woman's creation, these New Testament passages. So first, 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7 to 10. To give you t- context, Paul's making an argument about hair and head coverings in the church as symbols of authority. Here's what verses 7 to 10 in 1 Corinthians 11 say. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Setting aside Paul's main argument, what does Paul assert about man and woman's creation? That's right. He says, man did not originate from woman, woman originated from man. Anatomically, that would not be what you conclude, but that's what Genesis 2 says. That's based on the explicit details of the text. And moreover, it says woman was not created, or man was not created for woman, but woman from man. And that's exactly what Genesis 2 says. God says he was going to make a helper for Adam. Listen further to what Paul says later in the same book, 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49. In this context, Paul is talking about the resurrection and the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam, that is, Jesus Christ. Here's verse 47. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Quick note, the Greek word translated earthy can also be translated dusty or or dirty. ESV actually translates it as of dust. So sidestepping the main discussion about the resurrection, what does Paul assert about Adam? That he was made from the ground. He literally came from the ground. He was made from the dust. He was the first man, and he came from the ground. Two more. First Sympathy 2.13. In the middle of making an argument about how men are to be the spiritual authorities and teachers in the church, Paul says this. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. That's exactly what Genesis 2 says. It gives us that specific order. Adam was the first human formed, and Eve was created afterwards. You know the verse that I've mentioned in a previous class, the verses from Mark 10, 1 to 9. This is where Jesus is asked about divorce. And they say, Hey, is that lawful? And what does Jesus do? He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he says, From the beginning of creation, God created male and female. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. What well, God has joined together, let not man separate. He treated Genesis 2 also, and all its details, as straightforward fact. So Paul, the other writers of the New Testament, and Jesus himself, show us that Genesis 2 and its details should be taken literally and straightforwardly. And therefore, the the New Testament and Genesis 2 show us that we should not try to fit the Bible with evolutionary theory, with evolutionary ideas. We ought to reject all efforts to unite evolutionary ideas with a Genesis 2 account. Quickly, Rob. Yes, that's a great observation, Rob. As we said, the beginning of that section says this is the account. This is the, this is the historical narrative, just like the rest of Genesis uses that phrase. So again, there's not... There, There are tons of indicators saying that, no, we should not take this passage figuratively. And that's one of them, Rob. So rather than Adam and Eve being imaginary or some sort of ape men that suddenly reached that level of um, an evolutionary breakthrough, it's just as Genesis 2 says. God created them miraculously, the first man and the first woman. Adam was created from the dirt. Woman was created from Adam's rib. But someone will say, well, what about all the hominids in the fossil record? Hominid is just another term for like a transition creature between an ape and a man. Well, that's a question that could take some time to answer, but by now I think, I hope, you can answer that question. How would you respond? What about the hominids in the fossil record? What about the ape men that we found? Well, we we certainly would say that there aren't any, but can you give me a little bit more explanation? It all depends on your presupposition, right? As Bill was saying, what we would identify in the fossil record, what, what people call ape men, we would say, no, those are either apes, extinct ape variations that we don't see today, or they are just early humans. They're just regular humans. But that's because we have a different presupposition. Remember, when we're responding to any objection supposedly from science, we start with the Bible first. The trustworthy Word of God shows us how we're going to interpret the data we see in the world. The data itself, as we've emphasized in this class, says nothing. None of the skeletons say, I'm an evolutionary transition. No. The presuppositions we bring to the data cause us to interpret the data that we do as we do. And we need the right presuppositions. From an evolutionary perspective, or if we start, now let me say this. The assertion that these skeletons are ape-human transition creatures is really not provable. It's only logical based on evolutionary assumptions. As we've already said, these same skeletons could be easily explained as just actually apes or actually human beings. By the way, we might have the impression that there's so much fossil data out there But really, 95% of the fossils we have today are shallow water organisms, like coral and shellfish. Of the other 5%, well, actually, I'll say it this way, less than 0.25% of all the fossils that we have today that we've recovered are vertebrates, let alone human or ape. And of this 0.25%, less than 1% consists of more than a single bone. That means some of these... Assertions that we're hearing are based off of finding one tooth or a collarbone or a couple of bones together. So you can understand that your presuppositions will matter a lot because you are missing so much information. For more on ape men or hominids, please see the excellent articles on the Answers in Genesis website. There's also some great videos there that talk more specifically about why do we get these claims about hominids from secular scientists. But this objection should not cause us to reinterpret Genesis 2. Now, a slightly bigger one. Someone else will say, what about the contradictions between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? If the Bible cannot have errors in it, as you claim, doesn't this mean that we have to take the account figuratively? What contradictions are you talking about? Well, people will often point to three of them. There's the plants missing in verse 5, the mission of created animals in verse 19, and then the supposed inability of Adam to name all the animals in one day. Let's take each issue in turn. The first one I'll spend the most time on. What about the plants? Verse 5 gives us the impression that we're talking about day 3, but verse 7 according to chapter 1, would be talking about day 6. Well, there are two ways that we can respond to this objection. Two explanations. The first is that the creation narrative's strict chronology does not resume until the sequence begins in verse 7. Verses 5 to 6 describe issues from earlier in the creation week, but they do not indicate that that's where the narrative is starting. Those were two issues from earlier in the creation week that God was going to address later. There was no water for day three's plants through the form of rain. So God created a watering source through the ground. I'm not exactly we did that, but he did it sometime in the creation week. That's the situation. There's no man to take care of day three's plants. So God was going to that by later creating man on day six. So that's the first explanation that the chronology, the strict chronology, the sequence of the narrative doesn't actually start until verse 7, and verses 5 to 6 should just be understood as referring to some time between the creation week and not, um, not the narrative's beginning. There's a second explanation, and it's going to take a little bit more time to present to you. Second ex- explanation has to do with which plants are meant in verse 5. As John MacArthur and Tim Chafee, Tim Chafee's from Answers in Genesis. They both take this second view. Rather than interpreting verse 5 to mean all plants, before all plants had appeared, that is the plants on day 3, verse 5 describes two types of plants that did not appear until after man's creation or after the fall. And these two types of plants are called, in the NASB, the shrub of the field and the plant of the field. Okay, so what are these plants and why didn't they appear right away? Well, this explanation is partly based on something we see in Genesis 3. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. And look on the curse that's given to man in verses 17 and 19. Starting in verse 17, God says, or I'll just start with the, the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to, do, and to dust you shall return. You should notice, one of the phrases used here is the same one that we see in Genesis 2:5, Plants of the field, or plants of the field. God tells Adam that he will eat the plants of the field, and right after that he says, you're going to have to sweat to produce and eat bread. So from those two verses, what can we infer are the plants of the field? If verse 19 says you're going to have to work the ground to produce bread, and you just mentioned plants of the field, those are the things you're going to eat, what's a plant of the field? It's a crop, right? It's a crop. These aren't just any old plants you find in the meadow. These are plants that you cultivate for food, specifically. These are crops. These are plants that you could use to make bread. They're grains. They're crops. The interpretation of plants of the field in this way, as crops, is consistent with how this phrase is used in Exodus 9 and 10. If you remember what's going on there, God is sending the plagues on Egypt, and he sends hail and locusts as to the plagues. There, in Exodus Exodus 9 and 10, there, The hail is said to have struck every plant of the field and every tree of the field, while the locusts eat everything green on every plant of the field and on every tree. Well, in Exodus 9 and 10, what are meant by the plants of the field? Surely not fields of wild plants, because those wouldn't matter to the Egyptians. They must be crops. The Egyptians were devastated by their loss of crops and the loss of fruit from their fruit trees. Not the simple loss of greenery in Egypt. So plants of the field refers to crops. Now you might ask, but wouldn't crops and grains have existed since day three of creation of all the plant kinds? Well, yes and no. Now, I didn't know this before. But grains, like wheat, rice, and corn, are actually a type of grass. They're part of the Poetia family. So while grass would have existed since day three, variations of grass suitable for ordered cultivation and consumption would not necessarily have appeared at the beginning of plant creation. Man would need to identify which plants of the grasses would work as crops, breed them, and then work the ground so that he could plant their seed, cultivate the seed, and later harvest the whole field of plants. None of this could happen without the creation of man. So then Genesis 2.5's logic, in connection with Genesis 2.7, becomes more apparent. There were not yet plants of the field because man didn't exist yet, nor was he farming. So that's one part of the explanation. That, per, er, yeah. But what about the other part? What about the shrubberies, the shrubs? We'll look back at Genesis 3, 17 to 18. Alongside the plants of the field, in those verses, God says the ground will now produce thorns and thistles. Now the word shrub or bush is not used in Genesis three eighteen, but the verse would parallel Genesis two five. In two five, Moses mentions two types of plants that were not existent before man was created and or fell. And then in Genesis 3.18, Moses explains how two kinds of plants became prominent. Certainly, the Hebrew word for shrub or bush can describe a thorn bush or weed. Moreover, the book of Job in chapter 30 uses the same word from Genesis 2.5 in a context of desert bushes, broom shrubs, which is a weed, and nettles, which is a plant with a kind of thorn. Thorn bushes and weeds are undesirable plants. And the Hebrew audience would have recognized that. Therefore, they would have seen the connection between Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 3.18. Genesis 2.5 says this was the state of the world before you had this one kind of plant, the shrub, your weeds and thorn bushes. Genesis 3.18, those types of plants um, were now in the world because of the fall, because of sin well, what about the rain? I mean, we saw in verse 5 that the reason presented to us is that there were no, no shrubs. It's because there was no rain. Were no, no shrubs, no plants in the field. There was no rain and no man. What's the connection? Well, think about it. What exactly is a weed? How would you define a weed? That's a good word, Amy. Invasive. What does that mean? That's a great definition, Amy. It's not welcome, but it's taking over. Weeds really are just another kind of plant. I was always under the impression that the weed was not really a plant or it was like separate from other plants, but it's just a plant. It's just an unwelcome plant because it reproduces so aggressively or because it brings some undesirable things with it. Let's see. Yeah, what they have with them or what they bring with them or what they do to other plants. And as many of you probably know, weeds don't need much to flourish. Just look at a dandelion. You give it a little bit of water and a crack in concrete, and voila, you get a dandelion. What does it have to do with rain? Well, rain is an intermittent watering source. There are some places in the world where rain is pretty regular, but rain is not always predictable. And if you've cultivated a garden before, you know that rain is sometimes your enemy. Sometimes your garden plants don't get enough watering, or sometimes they get too much watering due to the rain. And what happens to your plants when when they're in those situations? They die. Not enough water, too much water, they die. But even if all your garden plants die due to lack or too much regular water, guess what's still going to grow? Weeds, the plants you don't want. These plants that we call weeds don't need great conditions to grow. And when they grow, they grow quickly. Rain, therefore, is a perfect kind of watering source for them. With intermittent watering due to rain, other plants may struggle to survive, but weeds will flourish. And as the other plants die off, the weeds will then take up the space that's left by the less hardy plants. But if you had a constant watering source, say something from underground, you may still have weeds, or plants that we call weeds, but your other plants will remain, and they'll prevent the aggressive spread of the weeds across the landscape. So then, the logic of verse 2-5 and 2-6 is also apparent. Moses says, there were no shrubs, none of these kinds of bushes that are undesirable. And why is that? Because God was not yet sending rain on the earth. These things flourish in rain. But they only appeared after the fall when rain also would appear. Verse verse 6 says that God watered the earth through the ground, and that would have been a regular watering source that gave each plant what it needed. But when did God start using rain? Probably right after the fall, though it could be as late as the flood. Rain, like other kinds of weather, weather, is a blessing and a curse. Sometimes it's what you need, and sometimes it's too much, or sometimes it's not enough. A much better watering source would be one that is totally consistent and regular. That would be part of God's very good creation, a constant watering source. And that's what verse 6 tells us about. So, again, this explanation, to summarize it, is that verse 5 and 6 are not about all plants. They're about two kinds of plants. And it's Moses emphasizing to his audience a difference between the world, or a difference in the world before man was created and before he fell, and when man was created and after he fell the parallel between Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 3.18. For more on that explanation, I can point you to John MacArthur's sermon or the article from Answers in Genesis. I lean towards the second explanation, but either way, there's no need for us to take Genesis 2 as a figurative account based off of Genesis 2.5. There are plausible explanations about what to do with those plants that were missing in Genesis 2.5. That was my longest answer to objections. What about the two other ones? Well, actually, these questions appear in your workbook. If you have your workbooks with you and haven't yet opened to it, look at the bottom of page 39, or rather, the top and bottom of page 39, because the second objection is about animals. Doesn't Genesis 2.19 says that God created the animals after Adam? Doesn't that conflict with what Genesis 1 says? Genesis 1 indicates that man was created after all the other animals. Well, in your workbook... We get a little hint about how we can answer that question. How can we respond? That's right. Bill mentioned that in the ESV, and I think it also mentions the NIV. The word is translated, the word created is actually translated, had created, the past perfect. And this is actually. Totally justified, according to the Hebrew. Certainly, God could have created a special set of animals for Adam to name in the garden. He creates the garden special for Adam. He could create a special set of animals for Adam to name. But the Hebrew here easily accommodates the translation had created instead of created. And that's why you see in two of our main Bible translations, those words are used. So the explanation for Genesis 2.19 is quite simple. The verb should be understood had created rather than created. God wasn't creating any new animals for Adam. The author is just referring to the animals God had already created. Those animals were brought to Adam. Well, there's one more objection related to the animals. It would have been too difficult to name all those animals in one day. Couldn't possibly be a regular day. It must be figurative. you wouldn't have time to name all the millions of species of creatures in one day and before Eve was created. That's the question also listed on page 39. Well, how can we respond to that? Yeah, Rob. Right, that's part of the answer. Um, thanks for mentioning that, Rob. There weren't millions of species. As we've already noted, God created, when God created the animals and the plants, it was just the kinds. So there would have been a lot fewer kinds of animals than what we might think of it, of today. Rather than all the various types of dogs, like the pug, the poodle, the papillon, the golden retriever. It would just be the one dog of the dog kind, and whatever else was included in that. But there's another part to the answer, based on the observation that we made earlier. Yeah? Exactly. God brought specific animals that theoretically could work as a companion for Adam. He didn't bring any of the marine animals, because they couldn't possibly be a companion for Adam. Adam was not a marine creature. And there are other, other animal kinds that were missing. So two parts to that answer. Very, very simple response. Adam was not naming all the species. He was only naming the kinds of animals. And moreover, not all the animal kinds were brought to him. There was just certain ones, beasts of the field, the cattle, and the flying creatures, the birds of the air. So these three objections and our answers to them, again, show us that there is no need for us to take Genesis 2 figuratively. Moses and God's Holy Spirit wrote these chapters as straightforward narrative, and we can trust them in all their details. There's no need to go figurative just to accommodate some evolutionary presuppositions. The text stands on its own. I know there might be some questions, but let me leave that that to the end or comments. Because there are some other interpretive questions I want us to consider, aside from just the apologetics aspect of this passage when you look at Genesis 2 in the account of man and woman's creation what does it reveal about God's character what's one thing he's good and why do you say that Brian Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you for mentioning that, Brian. We see God's love. We see God's goodness. We see God's care. Because the text says God saw Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. And then God does something about that. God is concerned about what's good for Adam. And he uh, works to do good to Adam. It's a beautiful example of the tender kindness of God. And certainly it would be encouraging for the Israelites as they're about to go into a very difficult situation. A situation where they're going to have to trust God as they go into the promised land, as they fight uh, against the people who are already living in the land, they can know that a God, their God, is so kind and good. Because look what he did for the first man. What else do we see about God? Something else, Brian? Yeah, once again. And this is the the thing that gets shortchanged any time we try to accommodate evolution. We lose the beautiful picture of God's omnipotent power in creation. Just in Genesis 1, commands things into existence. And he's doing the same thing in Genesis 2, but he does it in, in, in more specific steps. He makes man out of dust. And he makes a woman out of the rib. He can do that. God has that kind of power. Again, that would be so encouraging to the Israelites. My God is not only kind, but he has such power that he can just command things to be, and they are. And along with that is the idea that God's so exalted. Man is made out of dust. But God is so far above that. He is spirit. And in fact, he's the only thing that gives our dust value. He gives us the spirit of life. We don't have anything valuable apart from what God has given to us. We have his image, and we have the spirit of life that he's given us. We don't have anything to produce, to give to him. God is so much greater than we are. We also see, or Stephen, real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good observation, Stephen. Not just about God, but about man. That God gives authority to man. God has the authority to give authority to whomever he wishes. And he chose to give it to man. And that makes us stewards. Adam and Eve, the first stewards. But all of us humans, stewards over the earth. I was also going to mention that we see, again, that God is relational. Man is made in God's image. And yet, God determined it wasn't good for man to be alone. That's really interesting, because technically man wasn't alone, right? He had the animals around him. He had God. But God says, I want him to have a certain kind of companion. I want someone that will be comparable to him, that will help him. Someone who's actually of the same flesh. We see again the theme connected to God of unity and diversity. God created for Adam someone who was out of Adam's own being and yet was distinct from Adam. And like God, it shows us that we humans are designed for relationships. I'm sure we could say more about how this passage reveals to us things about God. But another question I want to bring up to you. Genesis is a book that explains a lot about origins. That's why it's called Genesis. And Genesis 1 tells us where the universe came from, where we came from. But what other origin questions are answered by Genesis chapter 2? Roy. Roy. Right, marriage. We see the origin of marriage, and that's going to be something I'll talk about more in just a second. Do we see the origin of anything else? Also mentioned in chapter one, but certainly given more detail here, the origin of male and female. Right? Certainly, that'd be a question that they, that the ancients would be asking: Why is there male and female? Well, we get the explanation, and this is really relevant for our culture, isn't it? God didn't create humans with one gender, which then evolved into different senses of gender. And it can continue evolving. We have bisexual. We have homosexual. We have um, polygamous relationships, all those types of things. Well, actually, polygamous is part of the marriage question. But in terms of gender, it's very clear from the beginning that God made two genders. They were distinct and yet complementary to one another. A female human was going to be the perfect complement and help to a male human. There weren't any other options. God explains the origin of gender, but also the origin of marriage. The word marriage is not not actually mentioned anywhere in the chapter, but you may notice, I didn't talk about it yet, verse 24 breaks the narrative to tell us this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse, again, uses the two terms ish and isha, talking about husband and wife, or marriage. And there's really something profound about this statement because of the way it starts in verse 24. It says, for this reason. What reason? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. What was the reason? Yeah, George. Yeah, the way the first marriage was created, the way the first man and woman were created. That is the reason that, we do marriage the way that we do. And how did God create the first marriage? By literally making two people from the same flesh, from one body. Adam says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam wasn't just being poetic, he was literally describing his relationship to woman, his wife. This is my same flesh, it shares my same bone, literally. This one-bodiness, literally shared by Adam and Eve in their creation, becomes the pattern for all marriages. Verse 24 says, A husband and wife become one flesh, just like Adam and Eve were one flesh. But this does not simply refer to sexual intercourse. Adam and Eve were more than that. For Adam, to care for Eve, to love Eve, was to care for himself. And to care for himself was to care for Eve. Because after all, they were the same body. Literally they were the same flesh. There was no separating the benefit for Adam and the benefit for Eve, just as there was no separation of the loss for Adam and the loss for Eve. They were joined in a very special way, joined even in spirit. And isn't this exactly what Ephesians 5 says when commenting on marriage? Ephesians 5:28 to 31, Let me read that passage to you. So husbands ought ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is. Paul even quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when talking about the one bodiness of marriage, beyond sexual intercourse. It's that standard of care and affection, that standard of unity for all who enter into marriage. And that's true for all married couples today. But there are even more implications about marriage based on Genesis 2. Some of them I alluded to earlier in the class, but all of them are exposited later in the Bible. We're running a little bit short on time, so I'll just mention these to you. We see that man is the leader in the marriage relationship. This is the pattern in Genesis 2. Adam was created first. Eve came from Adam. When she was created, she was brought to Adam, and Adam names her. All of these point to Adam's headship in the marriage relationship. Men and women are equal. After all, Adam and Eve literally shared the same body, same flesh and bone. But God has given the leadership role to in marriage, to the man. It also has implications for the church, as you remember the passages I read earlier. Paul makes clear on the basis of Genesis 2 and 3 that it is the man who is the spiritual leader and the teacher in the church. We'll talk more about that in a later class. The pattern of Genesis 2 defines marriage. Marriage is always between one man and one woman for life. And isn't this consistent with the one flesh analogy? God created Adam and Eve as a married couple, presented Eve to Adam as his bone and flesh. If God joins your body together with another person's body in marriage, like he did Adam and Eve, how could you possibly separate? How could you possibly separate apart from death? No body can separate from itself. If it does, what happens? Part of it dies. or Maybe the whole body dies. A body never seeks to separate from itself. That is the opposite of every single impulse that the body has. The body is always trying to preserve itself and all its parts. There might be times that we wished a part of our body was gone because it's really paining us or something like that. But our bodies, and the way that we associate with them, seeks to preserve itself and all its parts. Divorce is slicing off. It's slicing into the body of marriage. It makes no sense. It only destroys. And other forms of sexual immorality do the same thing. So it's no wonder that when speaking about sexual purity and divorce, the New Testament goes back to the Genesis 2 account. If you're one body with your husband or wife, it makes no sense for you to hurt yourself by cutting up your own body. And then, of course, there is also the layer that Ephesians 5 shows us that marriage, this first marriage, and all marriages based on it, is a picture of Christ in the church. As Ephesians 5 was saying, the exhortation is to love your wife as your own body, just as Christ also does the church, and the church is his body. There's some beautiful implications of that. And there are more things we could say about marriage, but Genesis 2. It's a perfect example of the warning that we've heard from answers in Genesis. That if you undermine the historical account of the first few chapters of Genesis, dismissing it or explaining away parts or just saying it's figurative, then you undermine many, if not all, of the Bible's other major doctrines. You get rid of Genesis 2, you get rid of the standard for marriage. And this is exactly what our culture has done. Culture makes marriage a construct assumes that relationships between men and women is all based on biology. God says, no, I actually set the standard of what the relationship between man and woman is. And I exemplified it in Adam and Eve. And then more fully in Christ and the Church. So to summarize what we've discussed today, the account of man and woman's creation in Genesis 2 does not fit with evolutionary theories of human origins. But... The account does have profound implications for men, women, and marriage today. All marriage and one-flesh relationships signified by sexual union must follow the pattern set by the first man and first woman. Anything else beyond that just brings injury and eventually the angry judgment of God because he hates those who pollute the picture of marriage. That is, a picture of Christ in the church. Before we close today, I want to mention one of the application questions in your workbook. I hope you look at all those questions, but number three asks this question in your workbooks. Many people, Christians included, seek to make arguments for biblical marriage based on statistics of healthy and happy families. Is this an adequate argument to make? Why or why not? It's not an adequate argument, and why not? Very, very good answer, Bill. This is the same question that we've asked earlier in the course, just a different form. Should we use evidence outside the Bible to prove what the Bible says is true? If that's all what we use, no. Because we want to show that our authority is the Bible. We start with the Bible. Data and surveys about healthy families can be manipulated based on your presuppositions. We want to be honest. Our presupposition is that the Bible is true. And the Bible shows itself to be trustworthy. Again, we're not afraid to make it use of extra-biblical evidence or statistics or things like that, but your arguments and my arguments should always be based on the scriptures, not surveys, not ultimately surveys or scientific analysis or interpretation. So just another application of that very important principle. That's all the time we have for today's class. I'm sure there are some great questions or comments, so please come talk to me afterwards or see the resources in our library or the answers in Genesis website. Let's pray. Lord God, it's so beautiful the way you display yourself in creation. God, it's so beautiful how you've created the the marriage relationship. A one-bodiness that is so profound. And yet, all of that was just a point to Jesus in the church. Lord, thank you for making us part of your body and for caring for us as your own body. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to imitate you for the joy that is in it. Bless the rest of this worship service today. In Jesus' name, amen.